Welcome to the Art Talks podcast. Today we're with John Hitchin, director of Renacy. Uh, John's also part of the network convened by the Lloyds Bank Foundation, Ratio, and now Sport England on the relationship between evidence policy and practice, and that resulted in the interim statement report, How to Be Wrong. Um, this is the first of a series of conversations intended to push and prod at some of the themes and ideas in that report. Okay, John, well, I thought we might start off actually just talking about Renacy. Um, tell us, well, first of all, tell us about the name. Um, so it came, Renacy was established in 1998, span out from Hackney Council. And that year, I suppose, is important because it, it came, came around the time of a lot of the thinking in the early years of New Labour around... Um, investment in neighbourhoods, deprivation, uh, but also around the country's city centres and town centres. And there was a report kicking around at the time around a new urban renaissance. And so I am told, although I don't know, that the name came from that and that then uh, they didn't want to go with renaissance or someone had already taken the name renaissance and so it was chopped into renaissance. Um, and as names do, it, it stuck. And it's an unusual organisation because, I mean, you're known for your research and uh, and your writing and so forth, but you actually do practical things. Yeah, it's um, it's it's changed over over the years. Um, you know, started very much as a as a program management organisation. You know, so going back to those early New Labour years, it was managing big chunks of regeneration cash. Um, so there's there's that know that world, there was um, SRBs, NDCs, all of the acronym soup of, of those years, but big chunks of, of public money to invest in places. And Renacy was the, the program managers of that. But I suppose the experience of working in defined geographies um, created a, a particular skill set, which over time meant that we took on more obvious consultancy work, but also started to manage the delivery of things and became and started to then employ um, people to do the delivery of things and experience kind of accumulates. And so now we have a, about two thirds of our team deliver frontline work, um, supporting individuals exclusively in London, our frontline work, uh, individuals back into the labour market. And that's, that's refugees, that's people with long-term health conditions, um, people who are economically excluded for one reason or another. Um, and, and we've we've been doing that for, um, well, about, probably about 15 years now. Um, we've been doing some kind of frontline work as well as our own consultancy or evaluative or other bits of research work. And are those two things integrated? Um, I mean, are they better integrated perhaps than you might find another organisation learning and doing? Uh, it depends on which day you get us. Um, so the, the strategy is very explicitly that we want the two to be greater than the sum of their parts. Um, but there are days when they are not. There are days when you think, why on earth are you trying to do these two things in one business model? Um, but there are other days when you get the team together or you get a mix of people or, um, as we have done many times, you move individuals from one bit of the business to the other. Um, so we've got an amazing quant researcher at the moment um, called Mahdi and he came through our refugee programme 
and um, so he worked on the frontline advisory work and actually we discovered that he had a rather impressive skill set. Um, so there's the people side of movement, but there's also some of the ideas. I think the team, through the experience of knowing colleagues who actually deliver frontline work, it makes our consultants better. Um, sometimes our it's, it's easier for the information to move that way from frontline to consultancy. It's not always as easy to take insights from the consultancy back into the frontline, particularly when you're, you're delivering quite target heavy contracts and you, you're driven by those targets, but, but we do make it work sometimes. So uh, yeah, on a good day, it, it happens. And, and there are more good days than there used to be. <laughs> <laughs> and you're nearly kind of 25 years in now with Renacy, and Place has been a part of your work right from the start. I mean, Place has become fashionable, place-based work, um, but it's not new. Um, no, not new at all. And, and we didn't call it Place to start with. It was all neighbourhoods was the language that was, that was used a lot when we started. Um, there was the Neighbourhood Re Renewal Unit in government um, is, is the obvious cause of that. Um, but a lot of the policy objectives were around sub-local authority um, patches, whether you know, there might be a ward or it might be a, a completely different, uh, differently drawn boundary. Um, so it was very much about neighbourhoods and it was also very much about the language of deprivation. They, they, were, the, they were the two things that were um, used a lot in the, in the sort of first 10 years of Renacy. Um, and the, but as policy changed, so does the language, um, and so does the, or rather, as the times change, so does the policy, and therefore so does the language. And sometimes those things align, and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they feel slightly at odds with each other. Um, so place is definitely um, of the moment in terms of people are talking about place-based work. But but a lot of the lessons are, you know, have been learned and forgotten before. Um, but then there are new ones too. So yeah, we've been doing it for a long time. Um, we've done it from a very government-led perspective in the early years. We were involved with the establishment of um, local trust and the big local program, lottery, lottery endowed big local program. Um, so very much not about local government, very much about um, very much about community ownership, but but still using the language of neighbourhoods, of, of less so the language of regeneration, um, and then. And then now we're kind of in a strange time where it's perhaps a little bit more philanthropy-led, um, some of the conversation, um, but not exclusively. I think there's, there's some in interesting threads from, from government and from some other agencies as well. But I think um, they might mean different things by place. And I think that's, that's been the interesting thing to us, is what people mean when they say place has changed over time, even if some of the core lessons are still the same. So you might say a little bit more about that. You've written about it, and we'll put it on the website with this podcast, but you've written in, you can't get from here to there, about the different functions, regeneration, devolving power, targeting resources, stronger citizen voice. So place is not one thing, it's many things, and you've been involved in many applications of that idea. Yeah, I think, I think when, when I tried to write that piece and when we as a team talked a little bit about you know, with this resurgence of the language of place when we talk, tried to think about our history as an organisation and what we've worked on. And, and if you think about the, um, the activities, I suppose, that an organisation might fund or a, or a charity might deliver or a community might want to do, then, then it, it gets very murky when you think about the activities because they, 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 kind of, um, they can come from lots of different perspectives and views of the world. 
And so what we try to do is think about, well, what's the sort of driving view of the world that might might separate different ways of thinking about place? And, and so we put in that um, in that piece that the five. Um, and I think I think we try to think about, well, there's the, the sort of regenerative side, and that's regeneration in the way in which it's used now, which is very physically led. Uh, when Renacy started, regeneration was was social as well as physical. Um, so it's the and I think I think perfect examples of that now is a lot of the stuff that's kicking around the levelling up agenda that the government is is, is talking about is, is quite physical. Uh, it's it's kind of you know new car parks, it's new new investments in places, and so it's it's seeing place through the lens of um, you know kind of classic green book analysis of if we put this economic investment in, what does it lead to? Um, what, what do we get out? And so that's the regenerative side quite physical, not that much about people, although, and often it's very much about people in a con- consultative way. Do you want this new thing? The next one that we have worked with um, throughout our history is, is the sort of the democratic, the local government, the, the kind of devolution side. So where does power sit and, and how does, um, how much say do you give to local democracy? Um, we are often described in the UK as an incredibly centralised country, um, and so you know you, there are a lot of great organisations and new local springs to mind previously in LGN who talk a lot about the, you know the, the benefits of, of increasing devolution down to local government level and, and giving more power. There. Um, you know, interestingly, when we started, there was also the language of double devolution. You know, be, beyond uh, local government, what does that mean at the neighbourhood scale as well? What do, you know and. Um, one of the, the the first thing I worked on at Renacy was a New Deal for Communities program, and you know, ten years of a, of a community-led board um, running big chunks of money in their play. You know, there was a lot of knowledge and, and institutional kind of capacity that was built up there, and then disappeared. Um, other things could have been done with that. Um, so there's the yeah, there's the devolution question: where does power, where does power sit in decision making and budgeting and tax raising and all those things? Um, and often when people say place, that's what they mean. They mean a conversation for local government. I think the, th- the third for us was then um, kind of community-led, which often overlaps in, in quite practical ways with the local government-led and the devolution-led one. But I think it, it, it often it also highlights the division sometimes between communities and their local representatives and local government. And I think big local, um, or rather local trust with the big local program is is probably the most obvious example of that in the UK right now. You know, a million pounds, it's up to you. Yes, you want to work with local government, but it's not about them. It's about the community. And, and there's you know, amazing, I won't, I won't go into them, but yeah, there's tons on their website of just wonderful examples of, of really interesting approaches. And that's, that's a program that's now matured quite a lot. And I think there's some really interesting things there. I think we're working on them um, as the sort of evaluator and learning partner for the place-based social action uh, program. So that's lottery and, and DCMS funded. And there's some interesting overlaps there as well. Um, so yeah, we, what have I done? Regeneration, devolution, uh, community. Then there is targeting. Um, so sometimes when people mean place, they mean we've got a pot of money, where should I put it? And 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 often that's not really thinking about the place at all, but it, it might often be starting from a point of I'm a funder, whether I'm government or a philanthropic um, funder, and I'm thinking about how to get the best value. And often that comes from sort of the logic of um, 
evidentiary practice around interventions. So, you know, we know that this process, this approach, this, you know, there's been some research on it. We know that it works best with these types of communities or with these cohorts. So you go to a place that has more of them or you, you pick a place that might, it might have a greater likelihood of efficacy. And so it does interact with place, but your intention for going in is much more about the program than about the community. You're kind of thinking, where, where will this work best? And I think that leads to very different types of thinking. So thinking, what does the community want? Um, you know, it leads to hugely different types of thinking. And then the fifth um, that we talk about is, is the one that I think is um, hardest to pin down, really. But it's the stuff that, um, and we've talked about it a lot in, in, the, in the group, um, is, is around kind of the relationship between place and system change and systemic work and thinking about places as defined systems um, and trying to think about what one does with, um, if you think about the place as the system rather than necessarily the theme as the system. So rather than thinking about the employment system, you think about the system in Hackney, where they're based. And yes, you're thinking about jobs and work, but you're also thinking about its relationship to homelessness and housing in Hackney and its relationship to social care and its relationship to everything else that's that's kind of within that borough. And I think there's um, there's a lot of overlaps, again, with that one, but um, with, with in terms of the delivery and or the practice that you might find in some of those other examples, but it's um, it's definitely different and it's a different way of seeing what place means. So in all those examples, you know, it's, it's quite structural. I mean, it's, it's incredibly diverse. It's, it's very structural in the way you describe it. But then also in the same piece, you have this excerpt from a Heaney poem, which I really enjoyed and then stole for the, um, for the How to Be Wrong report. And I'll, I'll just read out some of the stanzas. Um, Beyond maps and atlases woven into itself like a nest, me in place and the place in me. And what, 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 why did you include that? What were you, what were you getting at? So I suppose the, the, the simple answer to that is I, I've always loved Seamus Heaney. Um, <laughs> and so I've read a lot of his um, work and um, poet that I go back to a lot. Um, and so I suppose when you're writing something, you, you go back to the things that are already in mind a little bit. So that's the sort of, the, the, perhaps the most honest answer. But I suppose the more interesting one um, is Heaney's interesting for, for so many reasons, but for me he's interesting because, particularly in his earlier work, there's a huge, you know, such a, such a mind at work, such an incredibly kind of um, literate mind, so, so kind of informed of the world, but it's also so kind of drenched in the physicality of the bit of island that he grew up in. The, the, the kind of, you can smell it, you can feel it in so much of his work. Um, whether it's, you know, blackberry picking or, you know, a whole range of the kind of the poems, some of the ones that made him famous initially. And I've always, I've always loved that kind of balance between him, of this feeling that you're kind of, you're, you're talking about truths that span everything, kind of, that are relevant to everyone and everywhere that are kind of at the heart and are of, of so many things but there's also something incredibly grounded about you, about his experience and that creates tensions and that creates tensions in a whole range of range of different not just poetry but all kinds of art and 
life and policy. Uh, and, and to me, tensions are always where the interesting stuff happens. So I, I've always loved Heaney for those reasons. And so with that, with that, those stances that you read out, um, I'm always particular. I'm always thoughtful of in anything that's place-based around, you know, that, that well-used term. The, the map is not the terrain. And so when you're, you know, you, when you're thinking about um, a place, it's always invented. You're always kind of, as in that essay, I, I talked about the difference between the kind of um, the physical geography, and then when we're talking about a place and we we give it a name. Um, that they sit on top of each other, and sometimes the, the gap between them feels like cigarette paper thin. You know that the sort of we're talking about it, when I'm talking about I don't know Hackney Central, um, and a, you know the the mayor who or senior council officers in the building opposite us, or someone walking down the street know what I'm talking about when I talk about Hackney Central. But there is also a kind of a very the way in which the mayor or the local authority might think about. Hackney, its provision of services, is completely different to the way in which somebody who lives there and walks down that street and goes into the Iceland and then walks up the, the narrow way will think about that place. And that kind of, you know, that, that line in, in the Heaney about the kind of maps and the interwoven and the feeling of these kind of layers of things, it feels particularly important to me. Because when you actually take it from a policy perspective, which I suppose is where you know, and, and are sort of trying to do achieve some kind of social change perspective, it's very easy when you start talking about place to to dismiss it because of those layers, mm. to kind of get lost in them and think, oh, it's just it's almost too hard, mm. <laughs> and and it is almost too hard, but I don't think it's quite that hard, and I think there is there is there are times when you can think hard about um, those different layers about the fact that. The mayor of Hackney will never see Hackney Central in the same way that somebody who, I don't know, lives in the Pembry estate just around the corner will see it. Mm. They can at times come a lot closer to each other, and they can come incredibly close. But the, the title of that, the essay that I wrote, uh, and you can't get you can't get there from here, um, is all about that feeling of even when you get very very close, they're, they're different, they're slightly different worlds, and that that's. To me, that's the beauty of place because they're all held within this geographic boundary, but they're completely different as well. And you can't quite cross them, but you can get closer. Like, you know, like curves on a graph that never quite touch the axis. And um, and I think there's you know, that, that's what I felt when I was I was trying to kind of express that idea, and it just made me think of that poem. You and I are both from Liverpool, and we were both talking before about being homesick. I mean, I've never asked you about your experience of Liverpool, but you know, presumably it's very different from mine. Um, probably brought up in very different places, support different football teams, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But, but we do have a shared sense of meaning. You know, mm. It's the thing that kind of binds us. I mean, that when we say Liverpool, it's not, it's not a city. Mm. It, it is. It means a lot. You know, that meaning is the shared part of it. Are, are, are we? I mean, it seems to me, I would say, a lot of place-based work is not getting to that meaning. Is that, is that fair? I think that is fair, because I think, to your earlier point about it's a bit zeitgeisty, um, anything that kind of picks up on a, you know, place is what Renacy's been interested in, but there are other sort of policy trends which we are less knowledgeable about. And, 
and I'm sure it's the experience of any any organisation or any individual who knows something very well, and then you sort of see it's that experience of seeing a newspaper write about something that you actually know about, mm. and you're struck immediately by how wrong they've got it. Um, and I think we sometimes feel that about places that a lot of the stuff you know people have picked up a few of the headlines, and they're able to use some of the language, and they're kind of they're in the ballpark of it, but but you miss a lot. You miss a lot if you're not, and you know, I'm sure we, I'm not saying that as a criticism, it sounds like one, but it's more, it's the reality of some organisations are better at some things than others or more knowledgeable about some things than others, just like individuals are. And um, so I think, I think you're right that a lot don't. Um, but I think that, so part of that's because it's, it's kind of off the moment, but I think part of it is also to the point you're getting at. One of the things I like most about thinking about place is it, back to my, my tensions, is you, you kind of have to hold both um, the kind of the, the, the evidentiary, the program management, the, the kind of the, the professional skills that we learn and, and build up um, with the, the fact that you're working with a community that don't see that world in that way. And you have to learn what it is that matters to them. And it's a completely different skill set. It's a skill set that's it's much more about listening to different ways of perceiving the world, different ways of creating value, different ways of understanding relationships and meaning. And that's not a kind of uh, sort of an elitist thing of, of kind of separating. It's just that we've been taught through our professional careers so often to kind of think in, in these ways. And then when you when you come into a community work or place based work, or it can feel very very different. Um, when you get it into what it feels like in the community, and I think we um, we have seen experience where the the response to that is to sort of run away from it, to kind of build up these barriers of professional knowledge or professional skills, or or to kind of do the community stuff in a very tokenistic way, or you kind of you try and find a way to bridge that gap, but in a very simplistic way, and, and I think. That's where a lot of the challenges arise and why a lot of place-based work doesn't work. <laughs> um, and I think some of the... I often find it interesting how there aren't that many examples in the UK of really, really good approaches to collective impact. So collective impact approach is used much more clearly in other parts of the world, US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the ones um, I know a bit more about. And and there's only a few in the UK. And I think there's something, there's something interesting as to why that's the case. Now, collective impact isn't perfect at all. I think there's lots of ways in which you can, you can kind of critique it as an approach, but, but I think it's... Um, there's something inbuilt in that about the long-term nature of it and about the need to build vision and collective vision from the start and, and a whole bunch of things which we find quite challenging to do in the way in which we've um, built up kind of public policy interventions in this country. Um, and I, th I think that goes to, to why, it's, why it's hard. Um, just one theme before we move on from place has come up in the in the How to Be Wrong network has, you know, recently has been, um, is it is it place or person? And we've been, you know, looking at 
Putnam's and Romney Garrett's work on, on we and I and their idea that we've gone through these eras when society was very much about I or it was very much about we. And I, I don't know where that conversation is going to go in the network, but it feels to me it's going to be another one of those. It's not, it's both and, not either or. But that's going to be an issue about trying to integrate, you know, two competing ways of thinking and competing sets of evidence. I mean, what, are you, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, it goes very much to one of your earlier questions about Racy and the fact that we, we deliver work. So two thirds of my team think about the I. They are trying to support an individual who comes through the door who doesn't have a job or who a relatively recent refugee and wants a whole range of support on the way towards getting a job or whatever it might be. And they are thinking about that individual. And so sometimes when I talk to them about place, they're sort of they're nodding at me. <laughs> but they don't they don't see it. Um and I don't mind that so much, um, because I think to your question, it's it's both it's both and it's always both and. Um, but uh, but it also highlights, I think, a challenge for an organisation or a policy community or a network that's trying to think these things through. Is you've got pressures from different bits of your business model or your your network or your relationships. You know, we are delivering contracts which are, you know, paid by the out, outcome for the individual. Now we believe that those outcomes will be better for those individuals if we can think about the context around those individuals. And we we believe that place is a really good way to think about the relational context, particularly around people. Um, do we do that with every single individual that we help? No. Is there a tension between place and people in our work? Absolutely. <laughs> Does some of the stuff that we're doing around um, facilitating and coordinating systemic practice in a couple of places feel a long way from that, yes. But do there, are there also sometimes connections and really interesting ones between the fact that we're working with... So I'll give you an example. Um, some of the work that we're doing at the moment in, in Hackney, we're supporting the uh, collaboration between the anchor institutions in, Hackney, in the borough of Hackney. So the council, the hospital, the CCG, and we are trying to work with them um, to do some of the, the back office anchor institution work of, well, who do we employ? What do we buy? Um, you know, which many, many local authorities and institutions are thinking about, you know, this is that, that's far from unique, but we're trying to help them think about it. Or well, what happens if we thought about that together? What happens if the council and the hospital thought about it in the same way? They've both got their anchor strategies. What's the collaborative bit? How can that work across the Hackney system? And so at the moment, there's some really interesting questions about apprenticeships across the system in Hackney or single entry points to careers, particularly kind of early, early kind of uh, rungs on the career ladder. Um, we're not there yet, but those institutions are thinking hard about that and doing some really interesting stuff. That does connect to one of our teams supporting an individual into work in the borough. Because particularly if it's a public sector job that they're thinking about, those things do start to connect. But but obviously at times it feels a long... When you actually get to the weeds of delivery, it can feel a long way apart. Um, so, yeah, I I think... And actually there's a, there's a diagram that 
uh, we use quite a lot in Renacea, um, where there's people in the middle of the diagram. And then around them is our kind of consultancy and delivery. Um, so you've got kind of two arrows going into each other in a circle. And then around them, you've got the kind of sort of key stakeholders of community, of um, investors and uh, delivery organisations. And then around that, we've got our question of what's it take to improve a place? And, and so there is, there is something important about the individual being in the middle. But you, if you just have them in the middle and you're not thinking about the place question as well, then we think you lose something. I've kind of waffled into that answer. No, but so that's a really great example of the two things together. It was really, really, it was really interesting. Um, I'll come back to the name Renacy because uh, in this conversation that we had um, in the first year of the How To Be Wrong Network, we structured a lot of the conversation around Don Berwick's three eras. Um, and you know we're coming out of this second era, which has been very much around kind of outcomes and individuals and um, um, and uh, and so forth, and Berwick very critical of all of that. But I, you know I think one of your strongest contributions in the network was really kind of reminding us not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. That actually, you know, a lot of good has happened in this second era. Um, and you know, you talk, for example, about the importance of tradition um, uh, um, um, playing a bigger part than we perhaps kind of think. Um, and you, you also refer to um, as does ease um, your words. Just say a little bit about that. Yeah, interesting. Um, so the, these these kind of era conversation. Uh, it's very, I think it's a very rich one for, for renacing the kind of organisation we've built, the sorts of things that we're interested in, the kind of work that we do. Um, I suppose what I'm struck by is when you actually get into the weeds of working with an organisation, um, particularly when things get hard, um, and last year has been a good example of that, tradition and ease in terms of decision making or in terms of ways of working come to the fore much more than sometimes are kind of some of the things that somebody might say in a creative workshop might suggest. So that means, you know, what have we done for, you know, if you're a hammer, you see nails. Well, what kind of hammer are we? What, what, have, we, what, what have we been doing for the last 20 years? And why do we build from that? Um, and sometimes that's because you know, I personally just believe there's, there's lots of good stuff in tradition as well as lots of traps. Um, and, and sometimes you build those ways of working up for really, really good reasons. You build them up because they have, they have achieved some kinds of success. And I think, I think you know, the risk of any movement from, you know, we, yeah, I think we all know in the network that, that kind of the language of it is, is a, is a, is a sort of simplistic mm. um, separation between practice. But at the same time, I think we also part of the conversation has been very much that it does feel like there is a movement from, from two to something else, but we're not quite sure what the something else is. But my fear in that is always that you kind of throw out those traditions that we're, that we're useful. Mm -hmm. So I think, yes, we can all point to, you know, we've worked on projects, I'm sure you have as well, Michael, and, and, and many of the individuals in the network have, have talked about it too, of where you've done some work or you've worked on a research study or whatever it might be where you can see the sort of perverse incentives of the era two ways of working. 
you can see the fact that you're kind of chasing an outcome rather than actually thinking about the whole person or the whole problem or you're not really owning the you know what's you know are we, are we really thinking about relationships or trust are we really thinking about all the other stuff that's going on and is this actually replicable and what does replicable even mean when we say it and all of those sorts of questions which have been so rich in our conversation so I, you know we've all talked about some of those challenges of era two ways of working but also we've Era two ways of working and thinking have built up enormous amounts of knowledge about efficiency, efficacy, um, in what good service delivery looks like, about what actually what does and doesn't help people. We've we've kind of we we have learned a lot of things. Um, we've used programmatic tools, but we've also used um, you know we talked in the last conversation about um, Esther Duflo's work. You know we've used trials. We've used a whole range of different evidentiary tools and, and practices and they have helped <laughs> and to pretend otherwise I think is um, is disingenuous does that mean that we should not rethink some of our paradigms and should not rethink why we are, have been willing to accept that the, sort of the downsides of those no, of course not but but to throw them all out feels wrong to me and I, I'm always interested in I said it earlier it's it's always both and I'm always interested in what, what does the both and answer look like? And I think sometimes sometimes in work and in life you do have to pick. It's, it's not both and. But sometimes if you hold on to both and for a bit longer, you can work out that there are ways through. And um, I, I'm really interested in that. So what, you know, what have we learned around evidentiary approaches? What have we learned around good quality implementation ideas? What have we learned about and then how can, how can that be added on to some of our challenging questions of all what, what happens when you think about that in a context of complexity and emergence or what happens when you think about that in a, you know as you, you've introduced many times to the group in, in a world that's much much richer in data data that we can't process ourselves what happens when you stick those into into those newer mm. ways of thinking or newer problems and, and I think that's that's where the interesting line is of thought is. So for me, the, the tradition and ease is, some traditions are good, some aren't. <laughs> but I think we also need to be honest with ourselves if we all take the easier route more than we like to admit. And, some, and that is sometimes because we're a hammer and we see nails, or it's sometimes because change is really, really hard and painful. And there's a lot of transaction cost in change. Mm. Yeah, good point. I mean, one of the kind of core things that emerged out of the how to be wrong conversation was this is issue of, decisions. I mean, you know, the, the basic thesis was we can learn as much from our mistakes as we do from our success. But of course, you don't set out to be wrong. So, you know, what does that mean? But we could set out to be clear about the decisions we're taking. And if we if we do that, inevitably, a proportion of those decisions will prove to be wrong. That's the nature of things. And that can be a source of our learning. And I guess the challenge is that too often we're just not clear about what we're doing. We're not prepared to say, I'm trying to do X for fear, of, because we, if we're trying to do X and we end up with Y, I embarrass myself. So I suppose we're encouraging people to be clearer and being open to embarrass themselves. I and mean, what, what was your, your take on that part of the conversation? I think, um... I think there's an enormous amount for us to collectively think through around strategy and decision making. And I would argue, and I've seen it many times, 
um, that many, many organisations don't actually have a strategy. And so the decision-making can be almost impossible to, to hold to any sort of account in the way which you've just, you've just described. In, in terms of, you know, this is what we want to achieve, we're going to take these decisions, some of them will be right, some of them will be wrong, and let's see along the way. Well, the way you can't do that is if your, your strategy is not really that clear, so your decisions are not really that um, obvious or, or kind of recordable in a way. If you're constantly being responsive, then, then it's harder to sort of to know that you took this kind of proactive decision and then you can judge whether it did or didn't succeed. So I, I think I think there's a uh, I'm not gonna I'm trying to think of a way to, to kind of give some examples of that without without kind of um, sounding like I'm throwing a particular organisation under the bus because it's not I think it's it's a, it's a problem that's more than about any one organisation and I think a lot of it has to do with how we are all within the social sector I use that language to kind of keep it quite broad and been funded, which is in quite kind of programmatic ways, have this chunk of cash to do that this program. And what that means is a lot of the time the sort of the strategy is reduced to the programmatic level. So it's like, well, we're going to have this quarter of a million pound program to do this thing, and we'll think really hard about our theory of change, and we'll, we'll kind of build up the evidence around that. And, and so then often organisations become kind of buckets of programmes, which isn't massively strategic at all. Mm. Um, and it means that the decision making often sits at, sits in weird places, and when you when you kind of add all of those up, then it's not really clear what an organisation is trying to do. And, and I, I suppose what that allows, I think, is organisations to sort of say one thing publicly. Well, we've all done it, <laughs> um, but actually, when you kind of look under the bonnet, be a very very different beast. Being kind of delivering you know, two programmes to this cohort of young people, for example, but they kind of describe themselves as being this sort of, I don't know, much broader offer to a whole range of, of young people across society, where actually they've got two programmes that do these two things. And it sort of makes you think, how, how does that lead to good decision-making? Does it even lead to any kind of decision-making? And so I think in there, there's, there's kind of some of the threads of our conversations that, that are kind of... Um, come to the fore for me around kind of challenges of how things get funded, kind of challenges of kind of governance within all of that. And I think um, I'm always interested in why there aren't more conversations about merger and disaggregation within the sector, kind of breaking things apart and putting them back together in different ways. But all of that kind of, that doesn't sit there and so we, we often set, it doesn't kind of sit in an obvious place as a result of this. And so we might say that we're led by the data or that we're we're going to make a decision based on this piece of evidence but you might make a decision about is this program any good or not but then you'll go and look for the next quarter of a million pound and repeat and so you're not really led by the data you're led by something else it might be ease as we've just spoken about it might be a strategy that you've kind of got in the back of your head that you're living but you're not, you've not written down and therefore you can't kind of see whether your decisions were right or not and i think the last year has been um really interesting example of, of challenging some of those assumptions because I've seen a lot of senior teams go back to very kind of strict and rigid decision-making, almost kind of like gold team uh, decision-making structures because, you know, when, when crisis and panic happens, you think about protecting the institution, you think about protecting the team, you think about protecting the work. 
and often that's kind of displayed actually what people's strategies really are a little bit more than some of the uh, you know some of the things that people were saying their strategies were before so I, <clears throat> I'm not sure I've, not, I've necessarily answered your question very clearly here but I think there's there's a lot in there where, where I think one of the challenges of era two I think is it's allowed us to not be really clear about what our strategies are and I think one of my hopes for whatever era three is is that it's a much more um, much more positively strategic era where you're kind of making bets and strategic decisions which are informed by data, informed by evidence, informed by a whole range of other things. But they are also bets. They're also kind of, we don't know, but this is our strategy. This is what we want to try and achieve. And this is how we're going to try and do it. And, we, and, and rather than being quite so reactive as, well, we'll, we'll fundraise half a million pound this year and we'll try and do something half decent in this patch. Um, and I, I'd hope that we think, you know, I think one of the big changes that will have to be, we'll have to kind of work through collectively to get towards whatever a stable era three might be, is rethinking some governance questions. Um, and I think, I think, yeah, I, I think there's something in all of that, that that will help us unlock some of the some of the other questions and conversations we've been having about what era three might be. You wrote a nice blog about this again, which we'll post with the the podcast. And but just to kind of push that a little bit further, it seems to me that's also got to be something in the next era where the evaluation, if you want to put it in those terms, is continuous. Not you know not now and three years on. You've kind of almost got to be looking at this every month or every couple of months at the minimum. Is does that sound right? I think so. I think so because. I think for for too long, we allowed evaluation to be kind of reduced to in in too many parts of the sector, reduced to a, a kind of a tick box exercise at the end of a funding cycle, and rather than in smaller cases, smaller numbers of cases, but often the bigger studies, it was much more about does this approach work? You know, much more of the kind of policy style evaluative work of like you know it's, it's less interested in does organize x do a good job it was like do all the organizations doing what x does mm. kind of you know tell us something about how policy works i think the more that we kind of pushed into this of every organization thinking about evaluation at the end of what they're doing um, meant that we were kind of adding up things that that didn't really tell us enough didn't really tell us anything actually when you brought them all together and I think there is, however, the process of doing that was we saw, I'm sure you, and I know lots of other organizations that have done evaluative work knew that the process of taking an organization through evaluative thinking and practice was hugely beneficial to that organization. So the end point of this, the report was verging on useless. Mm. But the process to get you there was often incredibly rich. You'd work with senior teams, you'd work with frontline teams, you'd think about practice, you'd think about a whole range of things around relationships, reflection, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd immerse different kinds of data into the conversations and, you know, there was a lot, there was a lot of amazing things that I can think that we've done through doing evaluations for those kinds of organizations that were never picked up in the final outputs. So what that says to me is there's something about those processes that's important. 
And now you don't necessarily have to commission somebody else to do that for you. I think there are ways to do some of these things in-house. I think there are a whole range of ways to rethink how we do that. But, you know, I've, I've been hugely influenced in so much of my thinking by Michael Quinn Patton and sort of developmental evaluation and a lot of those, you know, and I think we're seeing developmental approaches in what is getting called more and more in our sector, you know, learning partnerships. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes people say learning partnerships and they mean an evaluation. Sometimes they say evaluation and they mean a learning partnership. Sometimes they're not really sure what they mean by a learning partnership. But I think what we're seeing is a growing interest in the sorts of questions that Quimpat and, and others were asking in, in the work of developmental evaluation. And I, I, think, I think there are, you know, we as a team, on the consultancy side of Renacy have talked a lot about how often you're sometimes you're the sometimes you're the kind of the evaluator. You know, you're you're at an arm's length, you're a little bit more like Ofsted. Mm -hmm. But most of the time you're not. Most of the time you're kind of I think I think he calls them um, evaluation consultants or something like that, where you're kind of you're half you're using evaluation skills, but you're not completely removed. You're not you know you're you're in it, and you're kind of coaching and supporting and helping. And I think that's a skill set that organisations really value, but they're not the same as what uh, what Work Centre would value. You know, what Work Centre wants the distance. They want to know that the evidence is mm. it, it has been generated with with a kind of higher bar of methodological precision. But the organisation wants you in the weeds with them, and I think that I think those developmental conversations will definitely have come to the fore, and will have to come to the fore. So, so just to round off, though, I mean, because that leads to another, you know, part of this conversation. Because, so, so uh, you know, the way you describe that is is really very clear. But one of the battles that we have is, you know, for want of a better word, is laziness and lack of rigour. And in the closing part of the first phase of the network, you were the one saying, how do we have these hard conversations? And, you know, I can see developmental evaluation, learning partnerships, classic example. I mean, we, we are doing learning partnerships, but I'm not sure whether they're very similar to other people's learning. I mean, I just don't know because mm -hmm. it could be anything really. Mm -hmm. um, and these words that we bandy around, like learned experience, listening is a, a, you know, a word drives me crazy you know I mean I've been trained to listen um, but now listening has become some sort of special gift that is you know um, and, and, it, and it comes from a political place because we completely failed to listen to half of the nation for a period of time and now we've all got to do better at kind of working things out I mean there's two ways to answer that this question one is um, what do you think about the issue of rigor or the other is how do we have the hard conversations I think I think there's a couple of things. One of them comes back to actually your first your first questions to me about about place about different definitions of place, mm -hmm. and it's a you know a, a bugbear of mine is you know we just need to be clear about what you know define your terms. <laughs> so when when we say listening, what do we really mean by that? What, what is that? And um, and often, you know and it's it's always problematic whether it's place, whether it's listening, or whether it's lived experience, where you use a word that, that many people will use in other areas of their lives, and therefore will bring with it a whole range of understandings of what that word means. And so if you're not completely precise about what you mean in that context, then it gets muddy immediately. Um, 
So everyone can be good at listening and no one can be good at listening, um, depending on your definition. So I would agree hugely that, you know, I was, I was trained as a qualitative researcher. I still use the skills that I used in that training as a qualitative researcher now, even though I do much less primary qualitative research than I used to. And I hope, believe, it made me a better listener. And I th when, I th when I think of listening, I think of some of the skills I learned then. Um, do I fear that there are other zeitgeisty uh, terms kicking around the social sector along with place at the moment that will get used and misused? Yes, absolutely. And do I sometimes worry about what that will do to the sorts of interventions, programs, ways of working will create? Yes. So I did some quite a, quite a long piece of work um, with a large charity around um, around the role of lived experience in some of their internal practices. And one of the things that whenever I was working with teams within that charity, so that the staff teams, was when you sort of start using the language of lived experience, you realised that there were many people in that room who had what we were talking about as lived experience, as in your beneficiaries would have. We were implying that there was another kind of experience, I guess a learned experience, that you professionals had. And then every now and again someone would say, yeah, but I am both. <laughs> and and what, what does that do for, for me? Uh, does my view get privileged because I have some lived experience, whereas my colleague Sarah doesn't have it? Um, or does she get privileged because she's been to school for three more years and has more learned experience about the about trauma or the, the topic that we're working on? And and I worry that lived experience when you know, it's always the case. There'll be organized, you know, going back to my point about place, there'll be organizations that have worked on, you know, have been called different things, beneficiary voice at times probably, or lived experience, you know, different things that policies change. But there'll be organizations that have been doing it for years. And they will kind of, they will find some of the things that they see right now appalling because there'll be organizations that are saying, ah, we'll put all of our lived experience over here in this box. We will value it in this way. And it's kind of as tokenistic-y and head-patting as some of the things that people who are doing that claim to be against. And, and I think, so I, I find a lot of that troubling. And I think for me, it goes back to the strategy point of what are you as an organization trying to do? And, and how are you trying to do it? And how can you be honest and transparent with, with all of the different stakeholders and beneficiaries and partners that you're working with on that? And does that mean that many times you will have to work in completely different ways to the people that maybe 15 years ago you would have called your service users and you now you want a very different relationship with them? Absolutely. And should we think really hard about what those relationships should look like in the 2020s compared to how we thought about them in the 90s? Absolutely. But should we package it up and give people qualifications for their lived experience? I'm not so sure, because I think that kind of takes us down an intellectual, but also potentially a moral dead end. Um, so I think, I think your questions around um, some of these terms and also the robustness, I think actually takes us back to place where we started. It's just 
as a, you know, our sector will always have fit themes that are more to the fore. Uh, I don't think it's surprising that place is coming to the fore at the same time as things like lived experience or listening, because I think we are looking for ways to work in a different way. Um, it's, it's all the era three things we've been talking about, Michael, and I think they can, on a good day, work wonderfully together. You can, you know, I go back to, um, you know, kind of when we think about place, we and particularly sort of system change at place, you know, sort of thinking about system change and place together. There's lots of ways in which, if you're interested in system change, you can think about the different kind of, you know, the ways in which you might try and target to change that system. It could be about the policy level, and you could be a campaigning organisation, or it could be ways in which society views the homeless. And I think place is wonderful for the relationship stuff. Mm. You know, how does organise X work with organisation Y? And how do X and Y work with whatever the community is? And how can you kind of explode all of that? Which is different, different to the kind of conversations you'd have internally within your organisation of how do we run our organisation well, how do we deliver our programmes well? But I think whatever comes next has to kind of think about, you take this organisation, you put it in a place, and all of those relationships get opened up. And that's the system stuff that I think is really interesting. But that is also the stuff that means that we have to think differently about listening, about what kind of experience we value. And so I see why they're happening, but I think the same challenges arise of define our terms, think about rigor, think about decision-making, think about what, what's the strategy, what, what are we really trying to achieve here? Well, thanks, John. I mean, that's, you know, we've just scratched the surface. I mean, I think if nothing else you take away from that conversation, the depth of the conversations we had in how to be wrong and, um, you know, how much gets lost in the written word and you try and put it down. But also, you know, I really appreciated the, you know, this mix of huge technical expertise, you know, that you and your organisation have, but, you know, how that's applied to people and meaning. I really, really appreciated that. So thanks for making the time. Pleasure. Thank you, Michael. We will post links to the work of John referred to in the podcast notes, his report, You Can't Get There From Here, and his blog on decision-making. Future episodes, we'll be talking to other members of the network and also to Patrick McCarthy, past president of the NEE Casey Foundation, who guided America's biggest foundation working with children through all three eras described in the How To Be Wrong report. Thank you.